Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 83. By January 1986, internal unrest in South Africa that had started in 1984 was in full swing, with the security forces hard-pressed to cope. The SA police were largely responsible for dealing with the ANC and PAC internally, although the SADF was going to get much more involved later. The unrest would barely calm down before the SADF was involved in a much bigger war in southern Angola, while special ops were increasing against the ANC-MK targets in countries other than Angola during this period. The South African military establishment had drawn clear lines between what they regarded as terror activities and politically motivated unrest that was violent. That's an important distinction, and it had a bearing on how they'd conduct some of the external attacks on ANC cadres. Terror was defined by the SADF as actions conducted by infiltrators who committed political murders, lay mines on roads and blew up substations and other infrastructure. Unrest was burning down schools and government buildings, barricading streets, large groups of people on streets who'd attack others, and sometimes including the terrifying necklace-killing technique, which was a car tire filled with fuel thrown around the neck of a victim. The South Africans were now tracking infiltration routes that included insurgents from Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Lesotho and Zambia. After South Africa and Mozambique signed the Incomati Accord in 1984, there were very few reports of infiltration from their eastern neighbour. But new routes included Swaziland and the Botswana insurgency also escalated. Pretoria tried to convince Khabarone to form a joint security committee, but this failed. The United Democratic Front was launched, which was really the ANC inside South Africa by another name. New revolutionary committees were launched as well as regional military structures and street committees, which were dominated by the youths, were picking up where their parents had left off in 1976. The SADF began to also pick up reports that the ANC was planning to turn 1986 into a year when the apartheid system would crumble. There was a particularly vicious and dirty covert war that broke out internally with security force death squads, ANC MK guerrillas murdering administrators, and the average citizen dragged into supporting one side or the other. The Nationalist Party passed a series of emergency regulations, at the same time negotiations about a peaceful solution to the future of Southwest Africa and Namibia were on the go. In Novemberland, Swapo's armed wing plan stepped up attacks on administrative officials. In March 1986, South African President P.W. Boerter proposed in Parliament that Resolution 435 be implemented by August, but wanted the Cubans to withdraw from Angola first. In fact, the opposite was going on, as we know. Back in Angola, Russian General Konstantin Kurochkin, who was a veteran of Moscow's failed push into Afghanistan, had instituted his own set of changes. We heard about some last episode. The improved Russian weapon systems, new aircraft, artillery, anti-aircraft and missiles. As these built up, the SADF began to focus its attention on FAPLA's logistics and weak points. One of these was the port of Namibe in southern Angola. It lay almost directly due west of Mavinga and Quito Quanavati. The SADF had picked up intelligence that FAPLA was planning a new offensive in May 1986, following up on Operation Second Congress, and this was called Operation Alpha Centauri. A column was to depart from Quito Quanavali towards Mavinga and Jamba in a few weeks, using the same approach route as they had for the previous op the previous year. So the Rekis were ordered to Namibe and Lobito to try and find out what kind of equipment was being collected 
and to report back on any possible targets. They called this Operation Sea Day. On the 16th of February 1986, SOS Johanna van der Merwe, the sub, sailed from Simonstown under Commander Jan Rabe and picked up four recce members at Donkerhut. Major Pierre Lundberg led this group, who were to spend the next eight days with the submariners as they headed 1,500 nautical miles up the coast to Lobito. Two inflatables were launched on the 27th of February at night, and the four reckeys aboard gathered as much information about Lobito Harbour as possible. By 0400 they were back on the Johanna. They were in some danger. It was a few days after the full moon, not an ideal time to take reconnaissance actions at night. Because of this, the submarine waited further offshore than usual. A day later, they headed back south to Namibe, where they arrived on the 4th of March. They discovered a few interesting things, including that two OSA missile boats were based in the harbour. The bay at Namibe is great for shipping. The harbour had two keys at a large disused iron ore warehouse to the north and another key further south. The Reikis orientated themselves using these concrete keys and took note of where another primary target lay, the fuel storage tanks. The submarine picked them up at 0400 again. Both information-gathering missions had been successful, and the Johanna then returned to South Africa with the Rekis. After a thorough debriefing, it was decided that an attack on Namibe was feasible. There were vessels in the harbour that could be mined. This could kill two birds with one stone. If the Rekis could sink a number of these ships, then the quayside would be virtually unusable. They'd also go after the fuel depot. Eventually, in May 1986, SADF Topras gave the order for Operation Drosti to go ahead. Pretoria had given up on the latest round of political negotiations. The raiding teams were to land somewhere between the 2nd and 12th of June with Commandant Fenta Ops Commander and Major Doe Stain Mission Commander. For the somewhat ambitious project, four recce needed help and one recce members were drafted in. The submarine SAS Johanna van der Merwe was involved once more and was ordered to take up a position off Namibe and three strike craft would ferry the raiders to a point offshore where they'd be launched. The strike craft included P-1561, captained by Brian Duncan, Kubi Kutsir, led by Gerd Engelbrecht, and the Hendrik Mens under Johnny Kamerman. The SAS Tafelberg under Captain Chris Moon would take up its usual position south of the Kuneni River, ready to offer medical and logistic support. By the 15th of May, the op got the green light for a start with a few tweaks. The SADF now wanted the Rekis to target the four oil storage tanks as primary and then the three ships as secondary. Two of these were anchored alongside the commercial quay and a third at the iron ore quay near the fuel depot. Because the South Africans wanted to cause maximum damage, an instruction was also passed along that the strike craft could use their 76mm naval artillery guns in support of the Rekis if required. Seven operators from one Rekki were sent to join four Rekki led by Captain W.J. Basson, and they were going to be carried by two strike craft, Kubikutsi and Hendrik Mens, which had been refitted to allow them to carry more special forces on board. The Tafelberg, meanwhile, was joined by two Puma helicopters and a medical team. Ops Commander Venter and his tactical team would be based aboard the P-1561, which was also carrying two more of the Barracudas. This was going to be the largest special forces raid of the border war. You can see how both on land and in the ocean, the war was ratcheting up. The amount of material being thrown into this conflict on both sides was escalating alarmingly. A total of 58 Special Force members, including their chaplain, were heading north towards Namibe. 
32 operators would take part in the raid itself and included divers, while 14 others would remain in the six Barracuda boats. A reconnaissance team under Major Pierre Lundberg would be tasked with the land and sea intelligence gathering before the raid could go ahead. With so much on the line, they didn't want unpleasant surprises. They'd check out how best to infiltrate the Sonangol fuel depot and to pick up any security force routines on the Angolan side. The divers would be working in pairs using Cressy sub rebreathers, Team 1 taking aim at any ships on the iron ore quay and fishing boats to the east, while Teams 2, 3, 4, 5 and 6 were going to swim into the commercial quay and see what they could sink there. Each diver was carrying two polyp mines filled with 5 kilograms of pet and explosives, and these would be fused to detonate at 0530 in the morning, almost two hours after they had left the scene, hopefully. The land-based attackers would hit the fuel storage tanks and the locomotives nearby, perhaps. There was also an electric substation and other important infrastructure they'd try and take out. Yeah, they'd use their soda mines and pea charges on the fuel tanks, mainly because these explosives are high in aluminium and work as incendiaries. Just to be certain of success, some members also carried RPG-7s for a possible standoff attack. That was fortunate. There was a threat posed by the access points, so at least four members would be based near the Barrow River Bridge to warn of approaching Fafa or Cuban vehicles. If the code Alpha Alpha was heard on the radio, the op was cancelled, and for the divers, two underwater grenades would be detonated three minutes apart, which would be their signal to call off the attack. What the South Africans appeared to have forgotten was what the Cubans were doing in the harbours of Angola. At night, security teams were dropping hand grenades around their ships at odd hours to ward off saboteurs. This was going to catch out the South Africans, as you'll hear. So, it was the morning of the 30th of May when the SAS Johanna van der Madeva rose to periscope depth off Namibe and the crew monitored shipping and fishing movements. At 1400, they slowly entered Namibe. Its mouth is around 5 kilometers wide and the Johanna crept in at periscope depth taking note of the ships docked and those at Anchorage. There were no OSA missile boats. They had sailed off at some point since the last recce visit. Then the sub withdrew to just off the bay and remained there until 0400 the next morning. On the afternoon of the 31st of May, P-1561 strikecraft rendezvoused with the sub and by 8pm all food and other material had been transferred. P-1561 then headed back south to join up with the SAS Tafelberg off the southwest African coast. Meanwhile, the Kobi Kutsia and Hendrik men's strikecraft had set sail for their three-day journey to Namibe, and by the 2nd of June were in the target area all the way from Durban. The weather had an effect on these vessels. Back off the Angolan shore, the recon operators had conducted their standard pre-raid checks on the beach, landing special force operators who noted the extraction points and any new developments that may stymie the attack. By 0400, this recce was complete. Everyone was back on board the sub. The Johanna then headed back into the bay at 0945 to confirm the targets were still alongside the two keys. There was one at the iron ore dock, three on the commercial key, and two more were anchored in the bay. So, by the night of 3rd of June, the two weather-beaten strike craft had made it from Durban and were waiting west of Namibe. That night, as the six Barracuda were launched, a hydraulic fault on the ramps of Kobi Kutsia held things up. The cut-off time of 21 hours 30 passed, and it was decided to try again the next night. The next morning, Johanna cruised back into the bay, using her periscope once more, 
and now noted that an LPG tanker had docked at the Iron Ore Quay and four other ships were now tied up alongside the commercial quay. The gas carrier was duly noted as one of the prime targets. That night the hydraulic lift fixed, all boats were launched before 2100 hours and the teams headed to shore in calm conditions. Boats 1 and 2 were carrying the raiding group who were going to hit the fuel depot and locomotives. Boat 3 would cover these two other barracudas and land with them while boat 4 would provide fire support for the diving teams who were on boats 5 and 6. 4 was commanded by Sergeant Nevoat who was armed with light machine guns. They all made it to the splitting positions which lay directly between the two keys. Boat 3 turned north, boats 5 and 6 headed south to the commercial harbour. That was also where the main town is, so they expected more activity. When boat 3 arrived at the Iron Ore Quay, they were in for a shock. The gas tanker had sailed. Worse for the raiders, there was no alternative target anchored at this quayside. It so happened that the tanker had left 30 minutes after the raider flotilla sailed into the bay and happened to pass three of the strike craft in the dark. By now, boat 3 joined boats 1, 2 and 4, heading towards the landing beach where the shore raiding party would set off. A couple of small fishing boats were spotted, but they were avoided. Moments later, two recce swimmers slipped overboard and swam to the beach directly opposite the electrical substation. Beach secured... The remaining teams had to unload in the waves because the shore was so steep. Major Doe Stain spoke quietly to the 15-operator assault team and then they headed off towards the fuel depot. Apart from the explosives, they were each armed with a silenced AK-47 and a pistol and the teams shared the extra load of five RPG-7 launchers, tripods and rockets. Back in the bay, boats 5 and 6 were now approaching the commercial quay at slow speed. The area was well lit, so they had to stop almost one and a half kilometers away where the divers slipped into the sea. Three large merchant ships could be seen at the dock. A fourth looked like a tug. The divers were arranged in six teams of two and all remained together initially as they swam towards their targets. They hoped to reach the ships by 0200 hours, then spend around half an hour placing the charges. The fuses would trigger at 0530, so theoretically they had more than enough time to swim back to the barracudas and make it back to the strike craft. The water was warm, the conditions great, the current only slight. There was no wind. It was one of the calmer nights they'd experienced. At around 800 meters off the quay, they broke up and began their dived approach around 8 meters down. Every few hundred meters, they would surface to check their bearings. The divers were aiming at the stern of the ships, hoping to place their mines close to the engine rooms. Team 6 had a sudden scare. A tug loomed into sight and they had to deep dive, then spent crucial minutes recalibrating their position. Too much time was lost, so they aborted and swam back to the boat rendezvous position, dragging themselves on board, still carrying their mines. The rest of the saboteurs closed in on the ships in the dark, hearing the sounds of machinery on board through the water. The hulls appeared through the murk. All was going well. Diver Team 3 of Captain Hechter and Sergeant Benji Boat reached their target, which was the ship in the middle. They swam under the props and were ascending to conduct a much shallower observation when an explosion shattered the water. A hand grenade had been lobbed into the ocean from the deck. They were in shock had they been seen, 
Hechter dived for the bottom, dragging Bert with him. They waited down there. The standard defense against divers was for the props to be activated, which usually caused the divers to be spat out from underneath a ship, but the props didn't move. Team 5, who were some distance away, focusing on their own ship, thought the grenade explosion under the water was the alarm warning they had discussed before and aborted their dive, heading back to the barracudas. The rest of the teams realized it was the security tossing their grenades as usual and got back to work. They gingerly removed the mines off each other's backs, placing these on the hull around four meters apart. This took only a few minutes, and once complete, they beat a hasty retreat, diving down to eight meters on their way out back to the barracudas. They had around three hours left before the detonations began. Most managed to swim back to the rendezvous point all the way underwater, but a couple suffered from nausea and had to surface early. But finally, all divers were accounted for, and the barracudas then made their way northeast to join the other boats, waiting off the river mouth, watching for the return of the land raiders. On the land, Stain and his wreckies managed to move into position quickly. There was less lighting than they thought, but the Fapla guards were active. Perimeter foot patrols could be seen even at this hour, all moving around a central point, which was the guardhouse to the north of the depot. What really caught their attention were the vehicle patrols, including a motorbike. After some time, they realized the patrols were following a set pattern. A couple of wreckies had checked out the locomotives meantime and said they weren't worth blowing up, and they were quite well lit. With all the patrols and activity, Stain then decided to use the RPGs instead of approaching the tanks with the explosives. This is where the innovation of Special Force Ops comes to the fore. The five tripod-mounted RPG-7s were aimed at different fuel tanks and the pumping station from around 200 meters away. Each of the rockets had an adapted emergency launch system, which was activated by a timed initiator. The RPGs were going to fire themselves and then self-destruct. By 0230, all charges were set and ready, and the teams headed back to their pickup point on the beach. On the way, Stain was looking for infrastructure to blow up with their P-charges. They spotted a railway line, power pylons, and a bridge, and duly placed explosives on these, as well as one that was taped to a substation. All 12 charges were going to explode at 0530. Finally, they made it to the beach, but the barracudas were waiting further offshore because of the swell, which had built up. Some of the wreckies had to dump their ammunition so they weren't dragged under as they swam out. Eventually all were pulled on board and they headed back towards the strike craft, which were 25 nautical miles offshore. The barracudas were winched aboard, the craft turned and sailed away from Namibia. Oddly enough, a friend of mine who worked at Capital Radio based in the Transcar was the first to break the news of this attack to people back in South Africa. And it was UNITA, the report said, who claimed responsibility for the raid that had caused the huge amount of damage. The SODF was delighted. Their political minders were still supposed to be playing a diplomatic game with a view to ending this war. Sabotaging your negotiating partner's merchant navy would have been seen as an extreme act of diplomatic suicide. The Russians, however, would not be fooled. As the raiders headed home, the SAS Johanna had one more dangerous task. The commander went back to Namibe to a position where he could raise the periscope and spotted the flames leaping from the tank farm. At the commercial quay, the Cuban-registered cargo ship was listing to port, badly damaged, sinking. 
Behind her, two large Russian cargo ships were also listing to port. At this point, and further out to sea, the strike craft began picking up flashing radar. The Angolans were searching for them. The SAS Johannes commander then saw a helicopter take off and fly over Namibe, heading south. Then a fixed-wing twin-engine aeroplane took off and flew a similar path. Johanna turned and exited the bay at 0800, heading into deep water, had a last look around, then turned south at best speed and sailed home. The strike craft monitored the radios, then heard that the MiGs had been scrambled. The 76mm anti-aircraft gun crews set themselves up in readiness, but by now they were close to 50 nautical miles offshore and there was no sign of the Russian jets. The raid left Namibe's port and its fuel depot in a ruin. The town restored power within two days, but the manner in which they had been attacked shocked those in power. The Russian merchant ships Kapitan Shokov and Kapitan Vizlo Barkov had been holed and were settled on the harbour bottom. While no crew were hurt, the Russians were shaken. The Cuban vessel, ironically called the Habana, was ordered from the quay into the bay, a standard procedure to ensure that the quayside remains open, but it didn't make it. As it began moving, it capsized. The Russians ignored the harbour master's order and let their ships sink at their berths, blocking the quay but saving their cargo. They had also been saved by the recce's placement of the mines. Two were carrying tens of thousands of tons of explosives and armaments. Had the mines been placed in the centre of the ships, they would have detonated and the carnage would have been biblical. The ships would have disintegrated and probably most of the quayside too. There was a lot of finger-pointing going on. The Habana had been forced to wait earlier in the week as an Italian and then a Greek cargo vessel offloaded, so the Cuban crew began to mutter about conspiracy involving the Bay harbour master. He had delayed them, and now look. But the Rekis didn't know at this moment is that the Russians had taken the sabotage very personally. The report of the sinkings reached the top echelon of the Soviet hierarchy. Communist Party General Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev was in Poland when he heard about this and pondered cutting short his visit. The Russian Navy mobilized and the Chief of Staff instructed the Northern Fleet, which was responsible for Angolan waters, to ensure this never happened again. A salvage tug set sail from Riga while a repair ship made its way south. The Black Sea Shipping Company, Russian state-owned, sent a tug to Angola. On the 11th of June, Russian Deputy Minister of the Merchant Marine Boris Unitsyn flew into Luanda. The Russians knew South African subs had been involved, scoffing at UNITA's claims and quickly identifying recce divers as the culprits. They knew about the Barracudas, and they also came to the conclusion that Daphne-class submarines were involved. They just needed proof. A Soviet Kashin mod-class guided missile destroyer called Stroyny Anchored at Namibe in June 1986, shortly afterwards, two unexploded mines were found still attached to the hulls of these ships. A month later, they were forced to set off one of the mines. Both had anti-lift systems which would trigger. The second they removed using the blunt tow rope and fast boat system, tugging it off the hull, and miraculously this one didn't explode. After making it safe, they found components from Japan, the United Kingdom, and the Netherlands. This clinched it. Only the advanced weapons production capacity back in South Africa could manufacture this ordnance, and only the Reckies could deliver it, and specifically for Recky. And they were right.
Next episode, we're back on dry land. Fapla's renewed offensive against Unita at Mavinga was developing fast. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps spread the word. You can also head off to the website abwarpodcast.com and email me there or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, tot ziens. Thank you.